Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading Paul's letter to the Galatian church together this fall, and this morning uh, we're going to look at the very beginning of chapter 4. So I'll read that for us, and you can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Galatians 4, 1 through 7. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are owners of all the property. They remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word that we've read and heard together, and we ask now uh, that as we talk about it and think about it together, uh, those words that we sang uh, just now would be true, that you would, by your spirit, give our jaded senses light. All of us in here, um, all of us in here need to hear from you, need to know you more fully, more deeply. We need to see your grace. And so we ask that you'd be happy to do it, to meet us in the places where we find ourselves this morning. Those of us who are here this morning who are ready and hungry and thirsty to hear from you. Those of us here this morning uh, who are not because you feel distant from us or we have been running from you. Father, meet those of us uh, who have faith and those of us who don't. Meet us in the places where we are and show us how much you love us in Jesus and change us by that truth. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So uh, just about a year or so after Allison and I got married, um, she got a notice in the mail that she owed the city of Chicago uh, a bunch of money for a traffic violation. And that she had owed that money, and I think it was about $500, she had owed that money for a long time. Uh, and that if she didn't pay it, things were not going to be good for her. Um, <clears throat> the letter, of course, said it more tersely and more legally than that, but we definitely got the point. Um, the problem was that this was uh, absolutely news to us. Uh, we didn't know anything about any traffic violations. She hadn't been pulled over for anything. We hadn't gotten any notices about it before. So she did some calling around about how to work on this, and we ended up going together to the city administrative offices. Um, these particular offices were on LaSalle Boulevard, right where uh, it, LaSalle crosses the river. I don't even know if those offices are there anymore. Uh, we walked in, and the place gave us that Kafkaesque feeling of dread that a lot of government offices do. Um, there were mazes of lines snaking off in every direction uh, towards windows with just vaguely helpful signage and staffed by people um, who had that glazed-over, frustrated zombie look. Um, it felt bad, is what I'm saying, and it felt a little bit hopeless for us. But we got into the line that we thought was right, and we slowly inched our way towards the counter. 
and when we got there, we were a little surprised to find uh, a, a little measure of benevolence and warmth looking back at us through the window. And I put that all up to Allison. She has that effect on people. She calmly explained the situation to the woman who was behind the glass. And when Allison finished, the woman asked to see the notice that had come in the mail. So we gave it to her. She took it. She studied it. She looked something up on her computer. And then she stopped cold. And she took her reading glasses off. And she stared at Allison dead in the eye. And after a few seconds uh, that seemed to us to be like minutes, she smiled and she said that that ticket was for drag racing. <laughs> and that she was pretty sure that Allison was not the perpetrator of that particular violation. And as soon as she said that, I knew that we were going to be okay. I knew that the debt was going to be lifted. What we never could have anticipated is how she made us okay. Instead of filling out some form and then telling us to go into another line towards another window, she actually buzzed us into the door that led behind the service counters. And in a few seconds, we were in the administrative offices, winding our way around desks while the people at those desks stared at us. And we went over to an elevator. She got us onto the elevator. We went to another floor in the building and got out and walked through another maze of desks with people staring at us till we got to a desk where a woman was sitting on her own. This woman explained to the new woman what was going on and asked her to correct it, which this woman did with just a couple of keystrokes. Then this woman, with a smile on her face, took us back to the elevator, took us back down to the first floor, showed us the door, and said, have a nice day. I mean, we could not believe it. I would not believe this story except that it happened to me. Sometimes I still feel like it must have been a dream, but it happened. She didn't just do the administrative work to remove the debt that made us okay. She personally made sure that we were okay. She took us by the hand and she led us to all of the resources at her disposal. And that beautiful woman is a picture, I think, a tiny little picture of what Paul tells his friends that Jesus does for people like you and me. He redeems us from our sins, which is amazing. He, he cancels our debt. And if that is all that Jesus had ever done for us, if that's the only thing that he had ever done, uh, it would be uh, endless reason for our gratefulness. But church, he has done more than that. He has not only removed the debt from us, he has taken us by the hand and he has led us into his life. He has made us his sisters and he's made us his brothers he has entered us into the family of God. We have become the children of God with him, and he has given us a father. And this makes us, church, not only into grateful people, but into changed, free people. People who are free to become the women and men that we were created to be. So Paul begins this section by saying, my point is this. So we'll get back to his point in just a minute, but first it will help us, I think, understand all of this if we 
see that this is a part of the letter where he's calling back to the part of the letter that we looked at last week, where he told his friends that they were heirs to all of the promises that God had made to Abraham because of their faith in Jesus. This is kind of the point that Paul has been making in the letter again and again. He wrote this letter because after he founded the churches in Galatia and moved on to work in other places and found other churches, some other folks had come in and had seen the young Christians in Galatia and told them, look, you've made a good start at being Christians. But in order to really grow up in your faith, in order to really make progress in the faith, in order to really, really be acceptable to God, you need to practice some of the ritual parts of the law that are found in the Old Testament. And Paul writes this letter to say again and again in a hundred different ways, that is absolutely not true. That's what we heard him making. That was the point that he made, as we saw last week, that his friends did not need to observe the law in order to be heirs to the promises of God. All, of they, all they needed was faith in Jesus. And this is the essence of the letter. And so here he plays off that idea, the idea of being an heir, and he takes it off in a different direction. That, that word heir invokes all kinds of interesting images, I think, and I thought it was funny um, to be thinking about this particular passage this week while I was also being bombarded multiple times a day, as many of you were, I'm sure, with news of a, of a billion-dollar lottery jackpot waiting for someone. That would make quite an inheritance. But there was no winner again. And that alone makes the mega-millions a shabby stand-in for the inheritance that Paul is talking about here. So here's Paul's point. He says, heirs, as long as they're minors, are no better than slaves, even though they own all of the property. The image here is of an orphaned child, a son in first century culture, who stands to inherit everything from his father, but he has to wait for it. He has to wait under the governmental guardians and trustees until the date that is set by the father. So this is a fairly common Greco-Roman situation. But what's not common is pointing out that the heir was no better than a slave while he waited. That's unusual. Paul's not making a a moral comparison between these two. He's just making a status comparison. He's just saying they're kind of the same. And that's a little strange. And what's also strange is that he says that this heir had to wait until uh, a date set by the father because in most instances it was just a legal age that would be triggered and the inheritance would come to the son. So it's clear Paul is messing with this custom a little bit. He's stretching it in order to make a point, and we don't have to wait too long for that point because he says it. So it is with us. It's like that with us, too. While we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world, just like the minor waiting for the inheritance at the date set by the Father. Now, this is a pretty striking thing to say. That that phrase, uh, the elemental spirits of the world, sometimes gets translated as elementary or rudimentary principles of the world. It usually refers to the basic parts of something. 
Um, the stuff uh, that we might call the building blocks or the ABCs of something, the simple stuff, the things that kids learn first. And that's a really striking thing to say because Paul, as we'll see in just a second, is using this phrase. One of the things he means in this phrase is to talk about the Old Testament law in that way. He's saying that in one sense, it's kids' stuff. It was for a time of immaturity. And even more than that, he's saying it was like being enslaved. It did not make people free. It never could make anyone free. Like we saw last week, it kept them in line, which was fine as far as that goes, but God has made human beings for much more than just being kept in line. Now, of course, most of the people reading this letter for the first time would be like us. And what I mean by that is that they would be like us in the sense that they have never kept the Old Testament law. These people that Paul is writing to, they're just kind of ex-pagans that are following Jesus now. And that's why I think it's brilliant that Paul uses this phrase, the elementary principles of the world, because it's broad. It's like a catch-all. It can apply to them and it can apply to us. And, of course, we have those things, the elementary principles of the world, we have those things plastered all around us in our culture. They're everywhere that we look. They shift, they they change, they morph, they evolve, they devolve all of the time, but they're there, and they're flavored by the voice of whichever tribe delivers them to us. They're there. The basic things that you have to do or think to be the right kind of human being. Make sure your politics are like this. Make sure that you follow the sacred orthodoxies of the academy or of the media of your choice or of the social or economic class that you find yourself in. Here are the words you can say and the things you can think, and here's the list of words you shouldn't say and the things you shouldn't think. They're all around us. I I have those principles running around in my head all of the time, in my brain, and I'll bet you do too. And Paul says it's a byproduct of immaturity with no power at all to make us or anyone around us into the human beings that we were created to be. No power at all to free us. In fact, it enslaves us, just like he says. It makes us into frantic, nervous people who are running around desperately trying to keep up, scrambling to prove our morality, scrambling to prove that we have it all together, scrambling to prove our rightness by desperately, desperately trying to measure up to these brittle, shallow, thin moralities that the culture offers us. Church, this life... (laughs) This running around life, it is a sad stand-in for the life that we've actually been made for and for the gift that we have been given to enable us to live that life. And that's where Paul goes next. He goes to this life that we've been made for and the gift that we've been given to live it. So in verse 4 he writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God, 
This is the Father, the date set by the Father. And with that phrase, Paul draws his friends, he draws us into the true story of the world. He says, when the time was right, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He wants to be as clear as he possibly can that Jesus assumed our nature when he came. He did not appear to be born as human, he was born as human. And he lived under the law like we do. And Paul says he did this for two reasons. First, he did it to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Earlier in the letter, Paul wrote about this inevitable curse that the law places over people like us. It's inevitable because we can't keep it. We have failed to love God. We have failed to love neighbor. And that failure has worked itself out into every part of who we are, the things we think and say and do and feel. And church, we need bought out of that curse. We need bought out of that slavery. We need redeemed from that slavery. And the good news is that this is what Jesus' cross and resurrection and ascension accomplish for people like us. He redeems us. He buys us out of slavery. No more frantic, nervous scrambling is necessary at all. No more running around trying to meet the demands of some shallow, preening morality. We're done with it. We can't do anything to earn that redemption. We don't do anything to make ourselves look like people who are good candidates for that redemption. It comes to people like you and me by grace, and we take hold of it by the hands of faith. And like I said before, if that was the sole offer that Jesus made to people like us, it would awaken our deepest affections. It would secure our unending gratitude. But church, that is not the only gift that Jesus has given to people like us. Paul says, we were redeemed so that we might receive adoption as children. Jesus makes us his sisters and his brothers. He calls us family. And he leads us by the hand to our God, and he says, call him Father, just like I call him Father. Church, there will never be an end to the wonder of this gift. When Jesus wanted to tell the religious insiders of his day why he hung out with people and why he went to parties with people that they wouldn't ever be caught dead with, he told them a bunch of stories, a handful of stories. One of them, which is maybe the most famous story Jesus ever told, was, was about a man who had two sons. You should, you should read the whole thing later in Luke 15, even if you already know the story like the back of your hand. One of those sons, the, the younger son, he wanted to live apart from his father, so he took all of his money and he split and he wasted every penny of it on parties and on prostitutes and when he gets to the end of his rope, when, when he gets to this moment where he realizes the hollowness and the vacancy of this life that he's pulled down on his own head, when he comes to his senses and realizes what he's done, man, he just wants to go back home. And he knew that the servants in his dad's house get treated really well. So he rehearses a speech that he plans to deliver to his dad when he gets back. 
Here's the speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he gets near his house. And his dad sees him a long way off and runs out to meet him. And his dad wraps him up in his arms and he won't let him go. And he kisses him over and over and over again. And the son starts to spit out his silly rehearsed speech about being a slave and not a son. Because he thinks it's his best shot. And the father won't even let him finish that speech. He won't even let him finish it. He won't abide it. You're not my servant. You're my son. And he throws him the biggest party. And it is the best day of this kid's life. And this is what Jesus does for people like you and me when we follow him in repentance and faith. He buys us out of the far country of our sin. And he takes us by the hand and he leads us to that same spot on the road. And we get the embrace. And we get the kisses and we get the party. And we get the Father. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That's what Paul says. He's saying that one of the things that the Spirit does is help us to know. He helps people like us know. In the flesh and blood of our everyday living, just getting up in the morning and doing what we do, He helps us know that we are genuinely the children of God. Just like that kid knew it on the road that day. He knew he was a child. He knew he was a son. He knew he had a father. And we can know him and speak with him and relate to him with the intimacy of family. That's what Paul means when he uses the word Abba. It's just a regular word for dad that a kid would use when she was out on the streets with him or in the house with him. I know that for some of us, Father is a bright and happy and good word. But I know for others of us that it is not. You know, some of us have not had fathers, or we had fathers who weren't around much. Some of us have had fathers who kind of appeared like ghosts at the end of the day and retreated into themselves or into their addictions. Some of us have had angry fathers or violent ones or weak ones or abusive ones. And so if that's you and your experience I want you to know that this is another one of the beautiful gifts that Jesus gives to you in particular. The gift of knowing a good father and of being known by a good father. The gift of being loved by a good father and learning to love and trust him. For all of us, this truth of who we are in this family, this truth, if we live out of this truth, not just know it as a thing that may be true, but live out of the truth, we become people who are incredibly free and strong and able to become the people that we were created to be, to live lives of love and service in this world. And so, you know, Paul's 
point is clear. He just says it in verse 7. You're not slaves. You're children. And this incredibly wildly beautiful inheritance that you're never going to get to the bottom of, you have it by faith in Jesus and nothing else. Knowing the grace of Jesus and experiencing the grace of Jesus by faith, it's enough. And it will always be enough to change us into the people that we were created to be. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to believe this. Help us to believe that that this is what Jesus has done for us, that he is indeed our elder brother, and that he's taken us by the hand and led us into the richness and into the fullness of his very life. Help us to have the courage to believe that what you said about him at his baptism, this is my son and I'm pleased with him, that you say about each and every one of us. Help us to believe that that is true with every part of who we are. Father, so that we will be healed, so that we will be strengthened, so that we can be the people you have made us to be. Do this for our good, and in turn, do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.